love for you to take God's word and turn, turn to Mark chapter number 10 this morning. Mark chapter number 10 is where we'll be. And our text this morning will be verses 13 through 16. That I'd mentioned finishing that portion of scripture last week, um, divorce and remarriage. Um, gave a somewhat of a, um, a charge to us an application to let no man put asunder what God has brought together and talked a lot about homosexuality talked a lot about feminism and other things that are in attack on that and one other thing is is divorce and adultery um, I don't want to give the world a hard time and you know think that we're scot-free much of the church is um, just abandoned marriage altogether I mean a smaller form. Yeah, we like to rail on, on the greater forms, um, uh, divorce and faultless, I mean, exceptionalist divorce and, and remarriage within the church has been a great step in that direction, has led to that. Um, but I need a little more time to preach on that. I need some time um, to communicate that the way that I desire to, so you pray for me. So in a few, minutes, a few weeks, we will revisit that passage and exposit that on the Lord's teaching on divorce and remarriage. We're going to carry on this morning with verses 13 through 16. Um, so if you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. And we'll read four verses. Mark, by the Spirit of God, writes these words. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Let's pray. God, again, we come to you. As um, I pray children to a father. Um, in some way to do the impossible. Father, we approach the unapproachable this morning. We understand that outside of Christ, if, if we even tried to do this, Lord, at best you'd cast aside our foolish petitions and at worst we'd be consumed by your presence. So Father, we praise you that we are not outside of Christ. But in him we can come to the very throne room of grace and we're commanded to come boldly, Father. So I pray um, in this moment that we all come boldly. Boldly with our praise, Father. Boldly with our petitions. Boldly, Father, um, with an expectancy to see you um, answer those things, Father, that you've placed in our hearts. Father, I pray that you've given us godly desires this morning to worship you. And, Father, godly desires to cast aside our, ourselves, to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. Father, godly desires to um, raise up a family that honors you. Father, godly desires to be an influence in the world for the cause of Christ and Christ alone. Father, I pray that um, as a result of our gathering together that we would promote all those things. Father, I pray that, um, that we have not met to glorify self or to honor ourselves, Father, in any way. Not to exalt a kingdom, Father, that is not our own. Not to exalt a kingdom, Father, that is not... Um, in whom, in whom, in whose uh, foundation is not the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ Himself, Father. And to ask that means that we all must die here this morning in some way, Father. We um, so we pray that you help us to do that. That's painful, and it's hard. 
Father, it's difficult. In a lot of ways, it's an impossible task. But in Christ, we know all things are possible. So, Father, we come boldly begging you to make us more like your son this morning. Father, we come to you begging that you'll help us to be faithful to the text. God, that the word of God would go forth with power, not with an agenda, Father, but just straight up the word of God. And that you would take it by your spirit, Father, to the depths of our, our souls. God, that you would rearrange the inner parts of a man, myself included, Father, that even as the word is preached and I'm the, the mouthpiece, God, that you would just lay me low this morning. God, that you would give me a conviction over my sin. Father, and that you would just give me a joy in Christ that is inexpressible and full of glory. Father, that you would show me him anew this morning in such a way, Father, that I would just um, expound the text with so much pleasure. Father, and that I would receive this, the text with so much joy. God, and that it would change my life, not only my inner man, but it would flow out upon the outer man. God, that um, each of us would just walk away different. And in some way, it would be visible to a lost and a dying world as well as to our families. Father, we beg you to do this morning because we cannot do it ourselves. Father, we need you, Father, so we just express our utter incapability this morning and pray that your presence is among us, Father, in the preaching of the word and the fellowship and the songs and the prayers. God, make yourself known. And may we say this morning as we sung, that we beheld our God, and he was mighty, and he was holy, and he was gracious, and he was precious, and he was just grace. Father, we pray that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much. Um, once again, we spent the past couple of weeks in that exposition prior to this talking about marriage. What a joy it's been to just talk about God's original intent for marriage. Um, and of course, God ordained the text and the way that it would flow. And uh, I see it as no mistake that our Lord brings us then to the topic of children in some sense. And it's more than just children. Um, it's an embrace of children, but it's an embrace of children in a sense in which the disciples didn't desire to. So we come to um, a text that is very interesting, and I pray that will be a help to you this morning. It's a text that is found in all the synoptic Gospels. When I say that, I just mean the Gospels that carry along a lot of the same parallel accounts. You'll find it also in Matthew 19 as well as in Luke chapter number 18. And you'll read very similar words as in verse, thing, in verse 13. When, Jesus, when Mark writes, then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. And I know it's not much of an introduction, but we're going to jump right in into the text uh, because I think I want to spend some more time on the application. Verse 13 introduces a group of people that are bringing um, a group of people to Christ. Uh, you read verse 13, Then they brought the little children to him. No doubt that they there are mothers and fathers, um, the way that the, gra gra the grammar is. And um, in, the, in the book of Mark, as well as the others, there's no doubt that it's both parents. It could be either, it could be or, or it could be both, it could be either or. 
mothers and fathers who are bringing their children to him, him being Christ, for the purpose that he might touch them. Uh, the term there, bring, it can mean uh, a number of things. It can mean bring or it can mean carry. It's used all throughout the Gospels to speak of those who are brought to Christ because of an illness, because of suffering, because of demons, because they're epileptic, because they're paralytic. Often used even in the Gospels, such as Andrew bringing his brother um, to Christ. It's used to speak of people bringing others to Jesus uh, for a particular purpose, either for help or for aid. This time, again, we have a population of parents who have heard of Christ and they are desiring to bring their little ones to Christ. Children is inclusive here. The term, it could mean a number of things from very young to the older range. If you were to go to Luke's gospel in Luke chapter number 18, you would read a parallel account that actually is a specific word for infants. Um, But the young, of course, here um, is the same word, the word children, is used in other places to speak of, for example, a 12-year-old girl in the Gospels. So between Luke's account, Mark's account, and Matthew's account, what you have is mothers and fathers, one or both, bringing um, all their their children of a young age, even in infancy, to this man, this God-man named Jesus Christ. I mean, it could happen either in, in the picture is either them carrying or them leading their children to Christ. So either bringing them by the hand as a little toddler, walking beside them as a 12-year-old boy or girl, or carrying them in their arms as um, in the instance of Luke's account of, of an infant. And their desire is that Jesus would simply touch them. And Luke would tell us also that he would pray over them. Again, the term touch is a very generic term. But it's often used in the Gospels as well as in the Old Testament to speak of um, a rabbi, a prophet, a man particularly sent by God uh, to convey a blessing um, upon someone, to confer some benefit upon someone. For example, um, there was a ritual of blessings was very well known in the nation of Israel. Noah blessed Shem and Japheth in Genesis 9. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in Genesis 27. Jacob, you may remember in Genesis 48 and 49, gathered all of his 12 sons, and the idea was to convey benefits upon them. And each of them that were particular to, to, particular to each son, there was something special um, in the conference of blessing that is really hard to um, nail down in an exhaustive way of exactly what was happening um, here. There's no doubt that the people were bringing their children to Christ, believing that there was a special blessing that only He could convey to them, or that there was some malady within their bodies, physically or spiritually, that Jesus Christ could only care for. And that's what we read there in verse number 13, that they brought their little children to Him that He might touch them, He being Christ. And then you get the term there, the conjunction, but... But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. You see a very precious scene. I'm of a very worthwhile nature. No doubt the parents were coming with somewhat of an environment of excitement and enthusiasm. Um, Why? Because this man, this God-man, was able to do things for their children that no one else in the world could ever do and enter the disciples' And what do they do? They do what they've been doing in a number of ways. Um, They stand in the way of the very will of God and they begin to rebuke the parents. The term for rebuke here is a very common word used in the Gospels as well. 
There's no confusion about what it means. Jesus rebukes the demon and a demon-possessed man. Jesus steals the winds and the waves with a very strong rebuke, the, the Scriptures say. Simon Peter rebukes Jesus in Mark chapter 9. We learned that just a month or so ago. And in turn, Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter. Um, it's a word that means to sternly command, to scold, um, to withstand. Whatever they're doing, whatever is going on here, the disciples are standing in the way of those who are trying to come to Christ. The disciples um, were in no way going to let it happen. And when Jesus sees this, the text is very um, emphatic as well. Verse 14 says that when Jesus saw it, saw what? The disciples standing in the way of the parents bringing the children, Jesus was greatly displeased to them and said to them, let the little children come to me. Now, the New King James here uses a phrase uh, for that one word that literally, uh, they translate greatly displeased. You may have a translation though, um, which it says, Jesus was angry. You may have a translation where it says that he was indignant. Um, those probably give a, a, a more accurate idea of the emotional status of Jesus in this time. He was angry. He was indignant. In our common vernacular, we could probably translate this faithfully. Christ was furious. It's an interesting word because the only time that it's used in this form is in this passage in all the Gospels. You hear of Jesus being angry earlier in Mark um, at the condition of the leper in Mark 141. But this is the only passage in which literally Jesus is said to be indignant. The word here means to arouse to anger. That is, to vent oneself and express displeasure rather than just simply brooding about it. So it wasn't as if Jesus was angry only in His heart. There was such displeasure that He was furious with His disciples that it provoked Him to express it to them. <clears throat> it's interesting to note that the object of a person's indignation often reveals a great deal about that person. This tells us a lot about Christ. This tells us much about what He desires. This tells us much about what He loves. This tells us much about what He values. Um, and you can see that in any man. You know, what displeases Him and what angers Him will often tell you about the greatest of the loves. And that's no difference with Jesus. Jesus' displeasure here reveals His compassion for this particular population of parents and helpless, vulnerable, powerless people. Let the children come to Me, He says. But the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Rather than disbarring the children, He argues Jesus commands them to come to Him. Even some of them as being representation of true heirs of the kingdom that He is about to inaugurate with His own blood. There's two aspects to the rebuke. One is He says, let the children come. Jesus didn't look at the children as a bother to Him, as a distraction. You know, there's a lot of speculation as to why the disciples didn't want them to come. Whether it was parental or whether it was the subject of their, of their objection was the children. Uh, we could speculate ten ways to Sunday and offer probably a hundred different ones. And again, with each commentator comes a different reason as to why they didn't want them to come. It could have been, you know, that um, they would have stood in the way of his ministry. They didn't have time to, to deal with children. It could have been a number of reasons. It could have been just simple pride within the, the disciples 
um, in the disciples' hearts that they saw them as a distraction, distracting them from Christ's ultimate ministry. Who knows, you know? Um, and, and the goal is not to get lost in them. Simply, um, all that we have is what we know. And we know that um, they were wrong in their withdrawal and their objection to them coming. And that we know that Christ is right in barring that objection. So that, that Jesus was willing to accept them as a population that was worthy to come to Him. And that they were, secondly, to stop hindering them. Stop standing in their way. You know, it's very um, reminiscent of Matthew's account. In, and this is a different account in Matthew chapter 23 as I'm reading through Mark. Um, this, this passage in Matthew 23 just jumps out um, in my mind as the Lord reminds me of it. In Matthew chapter 23 in verse number 37, you come to a culmination of a, of a group of woes. As Israel is rejecting Christ, they're on the, uh, the precipice of, of sacrificing the Son of God and murdering Him, selling Him out to the Romans and conspiring with the nations um, to kill the Christ. Jesus Christ stands up in utter rejection of the nation of Israel because of their rebellion against Him and cites this woe in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as hens gather her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, shall be no more till, I say, till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you were to go back up in that chapter there, verse number 13, you would get the context of exactly what was going on. Um, they were blind guides leading others. They were hypocrites. Why did sepulchers full of dead men's bones? But they weren't happy um, in their own self-actualization to, to reject Jesus Christ. They had to lead others in the way as well. Verse number 13, you hear these words, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive a greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. And the idea is, is that there's a greater condemnation coming against these Pharisees because not only are they children of hell, but they make others children of hell as well by barring the kingdom. They're not content with them going their way themselves. They must bring others and make proselytes, thus make themselves double children of hell. Um, and that's the woe that you see there at the end of uh, Matthew chapter number 23. You know, oftentimes it's quoted, you know, how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but that wasn't the condemnation upon them. In chapter 23, as we read in verse number 37, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house will be left to you desolate. And the idea is, is that they were barring their children, those that were coming after them. They were preaching a gospel that was false, 
Um, it was based upon work salvation. It was uh, hypocritical. Thus the great woes come in Matthew chapter number 23. And one of the greatest ones was barring their children. And it could have been speaking of literal children. It could have just been those as rabbis, um, as they stood teaching. Um, they were often seen as father and child in a spiritual nature. Um, but without a doubt, the idea is, is that um, they were not content with following their own gospel, but they needed everyone else to follow it as well. Thus, they would lay men low. And they would lead men astray. Um, and they would bar up the kingdom of heaven from those who were under Neath them. And I get a sense of that here. Jesus, with utter indignation, cannot contain it, or he, he willfully does not contain it within himself, but he expresses his, his displeasure with these men, his disciples. Why? Because they bar a people from the kingdom of God, particularly the children. It's here in these verses. That we find Christ's ineffable love for children. You know, many of you grew up singing about it, and today you teach your children the same songs. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. We teach our children from the very earliest of ages that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and it's right and it's good. And, and, those, and many of those songs that we teach our little ones about the love of Christ for them is born out of this passage. And passages just like this in Matthew 19 and Luke chapter um, number 18, that Christ exhibits a great love and an acceptance for little ones particularly. Thus Jesus reinforces His displeasure by His motivation. In verse number 14, He says, Let the little children come to Me and do not forbid them. He literally don't stand in their way, Peter and disciples. For of such is the kingdom of God. Literally, you may have an NASB. I know some of you prefer that translation. What a faithful translation it is. But it literally reads this in the NAS. Allow the children to come to me. Do not forbid them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. That the kingdom of God is made up of little ones just like these. That this is the nature, the nature of it. Little people. You know, of 12 years and younger. Little people who drift off to sleep during the sermon. Little people who are often rambunctious. Little people who need restrained by the authority of their parents. Little people who get even fussy and cranky oftentimes. Little people who are often rebellious yet um, are gloriously loved by Jesus Christ. Verse number 15, you see the motivation of it. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. Well, by no means enter into it. And you see the motivation here that... And in this motivation, you know, uh, what makes that... Or, or you can understand the nature of the kingdom in this verse. And it's a huge opportunity here to understand or to misunderstand exactly what Jesus means by the kingdom of God being like that of little children. I'll read to you a, a quote by a commentator. He says, Jesus repeats this lesson with dominical pronouncement. And he's talking about, because we went over this last month in Mark chapter number 9 in a very similar scenario. So he, he repeats this lesson with a dominical pronouncement, he says. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. He goes on to say, children, particularly little children, 
are often praised for their innocence, their spontaneity, and their humility. It's often assumed that it is because of these qualities that Jesus commends them. You know, we often do that. We often, we often commend the kingdom of God as coming like a little child. In his, this is his argument in humility and, and in innocence and a number of other things. But he goes on to say, it does not appear, however, that this is the reason, or at least the primary reason why Jesus blesses the children. The emphasis in this brief story falls on the children themselves rather than on their virtues, real or imagined. The latter remain unidentified, he says. The Greek word for little children is diminutive, uh, meaning very young or infants, or as Luke 18.15 says, babies. The terminology suggests the children are below um, the age of reason, and hence it is not their virtue but their helplessness that is stressed here. If we assume that Jesus commends children because of their innocence, purity, or even spontaneity, then we must conclude that the disciples' acceptability in God's kingdom depends on similar virtues. But he goes on to say, but as Mark's depiction of the disciples makes repeatedly clear, that is exactly what we're not. They are, and neither are they. We are not innocent and eager, but slow, disbelieving and cowardly. In this story, children are not blessed for their virtues, but for what they lack. They come only as they are. Small, powerless, without any sophistication, as the overlooked and dispossessed of society. To receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credits, no clout, and no claims, he says. A little child has absolutely nothing to bring, and whatever a child receives, he or she receives by grace, on the basis of sheer neediness, rather than by any merit inherent in him or herself. Little children are paradigmatic disciples for only empty hands can be filled end quote another man writes these words to find reason why the kingdom of god belongs to children and any subjective qualities in the children is surely to misunderstand the reason is rather found in the fact that they're weak and helpless and unimportant and in fact we know that god uses the weak things of the world and he closes with this warning to think of any subjective quality such as receptivity, truthfulness, or humility is to turn faith into a work. And the idea is, is that it's not inherently the humility or the things, the qualities that are born within children because we know that those children, given long enough, um, do not actually contain those qualities. But it's in the fact that they are a population that is, that is dispossessed by society, that are despised by men and even the disciples who have have, have encountered the, 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 um, the environment of the day and they too despise even the little ones. And that's what Jesus means when He says the kingdom of God belongs to these. It belongs to those who don't deserve it. It belongs to those who, don't, uh, who are the despised. It belongs to those who can't come, who can't do anything, who can't work, who can't labor, who have nothing to offer Jesus. Those are the ones He saves. That's what he means when he means that the kingdom of God belongs even to some of these. And again, to understand that as we went over a month or so ago, is that you have to understand a first century perspective. You know, that in the first century, children were not esteemed. Many didn't know. Families didn't even understand. Even up until the 1500s, 1600s, you read the Puritans and you find out that, most of, that many of the Puritan pastors had, you know, uh, eight out of their 12 children die in infancy. You know? That they struggled through the election of babies, you know, and the, the salvation of the little ones, probably more than you and I do today. This is not a contemporary question, you know. 
That in former days, without modern technology and modern medicine, um, it was not likely that a child would live to the age of five. That they weren't seen as beneficial or, or, or contributory to the family life until at least they were to make it to the age of three, four, or five. Why? Because you didn't know if they would live that long. You know? So you would have Romans. Um, who had uh, ultimate authority within their families, Roman soldiers and men that were elite, um, that when a baby would be born, you know, they would come in and see the child, whether it was a, a, a male or a female, or for whatever reason, they would give a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And he would either receive the child or he wouldn't. And if that child would not be received by the father, it would be set out upon the doorstep or taken out into the woods to be received by the elements. And that child would probably die within 24 to 48 hours if it was not rescued. If this was their idea of children, um, they, were, they were a people. They were a, a plague upon society in a lot of ways. Why? Because they, they couldn't contribute. They had nothing to offer. And what happened if you cared for a baby for three or four years, you know, and it didn't make it? So many wouldn't even try. They didn't see it as a benefit. They had little to give and little to offer to a society, you know? And this happened all throughout history. You know, and many of us say, oh, aren't we glad that we don't live in the Roman ages? Aren't we glad that things have changed? Have they? Really? You know, we live in our little narrow-minded, narrow window of American Christianity and we forget that places like Compassionate Hope over there in Thailand and East Asia and the Philippines are rescuing babies day after day, you know? That fathers and mothers are, are selling their children into a slavery for for physical in intimacy for men, and that, that, that you can go online and you can find out the information for yourselves that, 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 that authorities and that police and that the upper elite are in the business as well. All throughout the world in China, all throughout the world in Asia, all throughout the world here, babies are undermined. Children, little boys and little girls, are cast aside as just objects and things of our pleasure and things and ways to make money have things really changed you know have they changed in america or are we even worse after week after week we can take our babies to healthcare clinics why because they're a nuisance it's not a convenience they'll be without they'll be abused so our answer and solution to abuse is to kill the child and it's protected by legal authorities and by our governments day after day and week after week. Are we that different? Dare I say that things have not yet changed. And he says that if you're going to enter into the kingdom of God, that's his point. <laughs> you're going to have to do it like a child, he says. And verse number 15, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter. And I take that again to mean um, not, that the king, not that the kingdom of God must be received with the humility of a child or even with the faith of a child, although, although I think that those parallels and those illustrations are often um, uh, able to be used in evangelism and teaching because there is a sense in which that's true. But I think the point here is, is that he's teaching the disciples that if they don't receive them as this child, as this little one, as this one who is helpless and hopeless and seemingly has no value and nothing to offer, that if he doesn't come like that, then he will never receive the kingdom of heaven. You don't come to Christ bringing what you have. 
You don't come to Christ bringing what you have and, and thinking that God will uh, or God needs that to utilize within the kingdom of heaven. God, um, as Acts chapter 17 and Paul preaches, that He doesn't need us. Um, but thankfully, His grace is extended to sinners like us who come weak and without, and without, without nobility and without strength and with nothing as a little child despised and weak and nothing to offer. And Jesus, those are the ones who come under His authority within the kingdom of God. That's how you inherit the kingdom of God. You come to Christ and you come to Him with nothing. The kingdom of God is the power and rule of God to save sinners. Jesus is saying if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, this morning you need to submit yourself under the rule of Christ as a poor, helpless sinner that cannot help himself. That if left to the elements, you would be consumed either by the weather or by the animals. Spiritually speaking, with left to yourself, He's saying that you will be consumed by yourself. You will self-destruct. And that's the only way that you'll ever enter into the kingdom of God, he says. You won't enter in because of your own merit. You won't enter in because you have great education. You won't enter in this morning because you've joined the church. You won't enter in because you've been baptized, because you tithe regularly. You will only ever enter into the kingdom of God under His rule and reign and submit to His power and His glory and His majesty as you, if you come as you are. A poor, weak, helpless undesirable, unwanted sinner. Nothing in thy hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, as the hymn writer says. Those are the only people that ever come to Christ. Those who come with nothing but their sin. One of the great Puritans said just that. He said, the only thing that I've ever contributed to my salvation was the sin necessary for it. And that is the truth. We must realize that it is only in our awareness and our own helplessness that we can ever be objects of God's divine grace. Thus, humility is a necessity, without a doubt. Verse number 16, He took them up, those little babies, those little infants, those little ones, age six, seven, eight, nine, who knows. He took them in His arms. And clear objection to the desire of the disciples. He says, stop standing in their way and bring them to me. And he lays his hands on them. And he blesses them. He blesses them. Blessing is a word that, um, again, is, it's unique in this. Not in this context, but this particular term here is unique. The form of the verb here is intensified like nowhere else in the New Testament. Again, in the Old Testament, the idea of blessing was to provide them with certain benefits um, so that the, so the patriarch of the family would lay his hands upon his sons like, in, like uh, Jacob and his sons and he would confer to them benefits um, that, that they would not have otherwise. And you say, well, what are the benefits here? And if you're looking for an answer, I don't have it. I have no idea. I don't think it's salvation. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But at the same time, I have a hard time believing that the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ Himself, incarnate Son of God, entered in and that when He would touch a leper and that when He would touch a paralytic and when He would be touched by um, the, the, uh, the, the woman with the issue of blood and various other people, that when He would speak and that He would touch the winds and the wave would cease, that the same language would be used here and, something, and, and, and nothing happened that was just simply symbolic. I have a hard time believing that, but I, I don't really know what the benefits are. Um, 
I don't understand all that, so I'm not going to pretend to. But in some way, this is what we find. We find that Jesus Christ is out and about. He's ministering to the lost. He's leading His disciples. People come to Christ in pride and a lack of humility. For whatever reason, the disciples stand in the way of the ministry of Christ to this population. And Jesus Christ uses it as a tool to teach them um, that, that this is the nature of the kingdom of God and that if anybody will come, then they will come to Him like this, like this little child. And He takes them up to illustrate His acceptance of them. And He blesses them with a unique blessing that we'll probably only ever know if we ever know in glory. And that's the text. That's the exposition. Much application was already given, but I, want to, I would love to give you a, a little bit more application as well to the church, to us as parents, and also to the children. Um, to the church. Um, I don't think this is too far-fetched to say. In a day in which children are generally unwelcome, not only in America, all throughout the world, but even in our churches. But we are to embrace the little children. Not as a distraction, but even as part of the kingdom of God. You know? And for various reasons, I've you know, went back and reflected upon our worship and asked if it's biblical. You know? When you go to the Old Testament and you go to the New Testament, what does worship look like? What does it look like when people gather together in the Old Testament and they seek to honor God? What does it look like in the New Testament whenever people gather together and they seek to honor God with their worship? In the purposes of honoring God and edifying the church and building up the kingdom of Christ, you know, what, is it, what does it look like? Huh? You know, I think it looked like families worshiping together. Deuteronomy 31, 11 through 13 says that when all, the children, when all Israel come to appear before the Lord our God, your God in the place in which He chooses, you shall read this law before all of Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of His law, and that their children who have known, not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you crossed the Jordan to possess. That under the old covenant, the nation of Israel were governed by God Himself to worship Him in the way that He had so deserved, that he's deserved and desired. And one of those components was that the people of God would gather together and worship Him in the wholeness of their families. Whether it was husbands or wives or children or even little ones, they all gathered together. You see that in the Passover in Exodus chapter number 12. You see in 21 that if you're to pick out the lambs for yourselves according to your families. That it was designed for children to learn about bondage and redemption in Egypt. That in 12.26 he says, And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? That they would ask and that the fathers and the mothers would speak to the children and they would tell them exactly what the Passover meant. That they were part of the worship of God. Within the tabernacle and the sacrificial system, it was a family affair. These sacrifices were acknowledgments of individual sins, but also family sins. In the Sabbath feast in Deuteronomy 12, 
Moses explains how parents must bring their families to the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to rejoice in God. That the families were commanded to bring their offerings, eat together, and rejoice together in the worship of God as families. That's what he says in verses 11 through 12. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites who is in your gates. Deuteronomy 27, 11 through 26, we see all the families of Israel gathered together, one on Mount Ebal and one on Mount Gerizim, to recount the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience. And they shouted from each mountaintop to one another the blessings and cursings of the covenant that God had made with them. When they read the law in the days of Moses, God commanded families, including the little ones in Deuteronomy 21, to come together every seven years to hear the reading of the law of God. In Joshua 8.35, he states that all the words of the law are read to the whole families. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verses 1 and 2 says something of the same. They would rejoice together after, as families after, um, after revival. Nehemiah chapter 12 and verse 43, we read the story of redemption. And the rejoicing was made with great joy, the text says, including women and children. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard very far away. In worship and prayer, in the face of threat and attack in 2 Chronicles 20, children and wives were prayerfully present in the time of danger of invasion. The children were included in singing and prayer in the face of battle. In verse number 13, he says, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with all their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came. In the temple, in 2 Chronicles 31 and verse 18, the families were before God in the temple to sanctify themselves. Verse 18 says they were enrolled with all their little children, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, the whole assembly, for they were faithful in keeping themselves holy. But throughout the Old Testament, what you find is you find the protection, the, uh, the exaltation in some sense, and not, not in, a, in a worshiping sense, but in some sense you find that the worship of God was a family affair. And not only was it a family affair, but it was a corporate church affair. The families gathered together often and regularly to worship God. You find this in the New Testament as well. Matthew 21, verse 15 and 16 says, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that He did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant, and they said to Him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise. Matthew 14 and 21, you find that Jesus feeds the multitudes in a teaching session. 5,000 men outside are other than, it says, women and children. The same sentiment is given in Matthew 15 and 28 where he says that 4,000 men were fed besides women and children. Each one estimating up to fifteen to 25,000 different people sitting under the teaching of Christ um, as a family affair. In Acts chapter 21 and verse 5, you see that, um, that prayer included um, wives and children as they uh, gave a great farewell to the Apostle Paul, that they all gathered together um, as families at local church meetings. Um, what you found was families gathered together. Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians chapter number 3. What you find is a direct address to the children. Paul uses a grammatical Greek form in those passages, particularly Ephesians. It's called evocative of direct address. He is directly addressing in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 1 through 4 when he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. 
that Paul, as a pastor, Paul as an elder, Paul as a missionary, Paul as a church planter who has a great love for Ephesus as he plants that church and desires to build it up in the reading, uh, in, in the direct address to the church and what it needed, he directly addresses the children. He looks at them as, as, as the letters being read behind the pulpit or whatever, uh, whatever they, they thought that, or whatever they decided and how they decided to worship. Um, he looks directly at the children in his teaching and he directly addresses them as if he understood that they would be there. That the worship of God is not simply for adults, that it's for children as well. That prayer and that repentance and that revival and that worship and that exaltation and that praise and that redemption and that all of these things are meant for children as well. That they were that they were seen as a part of the church in some sense. And that there was a desire for them to be there. That, the, that when you study the Old Testament, and particularly the New Testament, you find that the primary vehicle of redemption in the world is the church. And that the church is where children should be. And that that's where they should learn to worship God corporately. It's where they learn to hear the Gospel over and over and over again. It's where when you pass the elements of the bread and the cup that they look up and they say, Mommy and Daddy, what is that? And you look down to them and you say, by the grace of God, that's the blood and the body of Jesus Christ who died for me. And you know what? He loves little children too. And that if one day you'll come by faith and repentance and recognition of your sin and what Christ accomplished on your behalf, that Christ is, 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 is uniquely present here among us and that that is what our children ought to see, they ought to sit under the preaching of God's Word, they ought to be taught by you and by me, um, even as, 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 as oftentimes it's just uniquely grievous to me that I can't be back there with them to teach them how to sit and how to listen and how to receive a sermon, you know? Thus it's incumbent upon me to do that all throughout the week. And oh, how I failed in many ways. To sit with them day in and day out and week after week in areas like family worship and teach them how they are to sit and how they are to behave and how they are to receive and how, how reverent we are to be in God's house and how respectful we are to be uh, for one another and how I'm to listen to a sermon whether I'm 12 years old or 10 years old or 8 years old or 4 years old. And I say those because I got them all, you know. And how each one has unique needs, but how each one, those needs can be met by Christ. And how those, each one of those, those needs can be met by us as parents as we train them up and how they are to sit in God's house and listen to God's Word and to respect one another. That what we have contained within this body is uniquely the very presence of Christ as we gather together under the preaching of the Word, the administration of the ordinances, um, the prayers of God's people, and the, and the fellowship of the saints and the singing of hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. That this, there is a reverence as we gather together on the Lord's day. And I wonder sometimes if we communicate that reverence to our children in such that they know that this is God's house and this is God's people and that Christ is uniquely present. Thus, when we come to the house of God, um, as much as we want our children to be in here, we want them to be in here for a purpose and for a reason that they would too, um, in some sense, experience the presence of Christ and to know Him. That we aren't to bar um, the worship of God to adults 18 and over. But Jesus welcomes the children to come. That as disciples, we are to understand that even at the very youngest of ages, 
That they have little hearts that are bent towards rebellion. And they have little hearts that are bent towards their own desires. And that we as parents and us as a church are to gather together and come alongside as Paul comes alongside Ephesus. And Paul comes alongside the parents of Ephesus and Colossae. Not just Ephesus, but multiple churches. And he comes alongside them to teach them and to train them. And he comes alongside parents and he addresses the children um, to obey their parents in the Lord. That that's exactly what you see. That you see the worship of God contained in family corporate worship. Um, and, and I don't argue that exclusively, you know. But I can remember a time being in churches all throughout my life. And my later, I say all throughout my life, I wasn't raised as a Christian. Um, but even in fundamentalism and even in conservative churches, oh, how we would separate our children out from worship for everything, you know. And before I ever figured out there was a movement of any sort, you know, listening to uh, Vody Bauckham sermons and just studying the Word of God, you know, determined that if God would um, desire for me to lead a church and pastor, that there would be at least one service in which we would guard family type worship to teach and to train our little ones um, how to how, what God's house is all about and what preaching, uh, what reverence we should have for the preaching of the Word of God, not because the man standing by the pulpit behind the pulpit, but because the preaching of the Word is the very Word of God when 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 carried along by the Spirit of God. And if that's the fashion, that's the form, that's the means by which He extends grace to His people. And thus when we gather together, we are to gather together reverently as families. And oh, how difficult that is oftentimes. Um, but oh, how meaningful I'm, I'm convinced that it will be. And that one of the reasons we keep them here is because God can save little children. The Gospel can go forth into the hearts and the lives of our little ones. Thus, it's imperative that we teach them how to listen. Thus, it's imperative we teach them how to respect. Thus, it's imperative that this isn't just another um, day throughout the week where we can gather together socially and let our kids play together and do anything and everything that they so desire. But we teach them that we gather together for a purpose and that they are to receive God's Word and they are to joyfully submit and they are to contemplate and they are to meditate and they are to, they're, they're to think about and they are to wrestle with the great doctrines of the faith. You know, that that's exactly what I think Paul advocates for. If you were to go to Colossians chapter number 3, I think you would see something of that nature. And I picked this one. This is a parallel of the Ephesus, or to the gospel, or to the, to, I said the gospel to the Ephesians. That's true too. Um, but in Colossians chapter 3, in verse number 20, Actually, verses 18 and on, you see a very, um, a very much a parallel between that and Ephesians. You're probably more um, familiar with Ephesians. But in 18, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands, and husbands, love your wives. And, and then in 20, children, obey your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing in the Lord. And we understand that parents have the whole responsibility of raising their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. But as I said previous, at the same time, this epistle, this letter to the church is written with children in mind. Paul here assumes that children are going to be present in the public assembly when this letter is read. Paul carrying authority in the church comes alongside parents in their obligation and he encourages and he commands and he exhorts those little ones. Boys and girls, you are to obey your parents. And he carries part of the responsibility of discipleship in the congregation to come alongside and to help from the parental side and by addressing the children's hearts. Children, obey your parents. But at the same time, 
I would draw your attention to the motivation. He says this is well-pleasing in the Lord. To the Lord. You may have one that says, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord or in the Lord. The same ideas in both. It's probably composite. And at the same time, he can't mean that just simple obedience apart from Christ is pleasing to the Lord. Right? Romans 8, 8 and Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Romans 8, 8, you can't please the Lord in the flesh. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, uh, that without faith it is impossible to please God. Yet here he argues that there are children in Colossae and children in Ephesus and children throughout all the churches in whom the Lord is in and present with and has given a new heart such that when they obey their parents by faith in Christ, that they please the Lord. It's impossible for those outside of Christ to please God. Those without new hearts, those that are dead in their sins. But here it seems that it is possible for children to please God when they obey their parents in the Lord. Paul here is arguing that there are children in the congregation under the hearing of God's Word who are encouraged and commanded to please Him by faith in Christ through the obedience, through their joyful obedience, willful obedience to the Lord, in, to their parents in Christ. That boys and girls, children, you don't have to be a grown-up. You don't have to be a parent. You don't have to be an adult to please God. That each and every boy and girl here, when they come to the age in which God speaks to them, can please the Lord through faith in Christ. That what we see all throughout the Scriptures is young people coming to Christ. In the Old Testament and the New, many people argue that Timothy came to Christ at a very young age. Why? Because of a faithful mother and a faithful grandmother. We read of men like David in Psalm 22.9 who says, But you are uh, he who took me out of the womb and you made me trust even while on my mother's bosom. We read of men like De- uh, Samuel who was brought to the temple at a very young age and God speaks to probably before the age of 10. We find that King Josiah took the throne at age 8 and at the age of 16 in 2 Chronicles 34 and 3 says, For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. What you find is that Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were just young men who trusted their Creator in the days of their youth. That what you find throughout the Scriptures is a plethora and charge to young people to remember their Creator in the days of their youth. To trust God when they are young and when they are little ones. What you find all throughout the Scriptures are addresses to little boys and little girls that sermons are not just meat for adults, but milk and meat for our little ones. We don't give our little ones enough enough, um, credit you know, we hook them on veggie tails and other things, you know, that'll just, um, just overwhelm their minds. And we think that they can't contain it. You know, they think that they can't meditate upon the great things of God and upon the great doctrines of the faith and the Scriptures. But I'm telling you that that's come with the age in which we live in because in former days that was not true. In biblical days they had high demands and high, um, uh, high expectations for their children. You say, well, those are scriptural days, you know. Um, that's not true of our children today, but it could be. It could be. I read the story of a, an excerpt out of um, a biography that one of the Puritans in the 17th century wrote. 
to encourage children to believe in Christ at a young age. It's called a token for children that gives many accounts of the conversion of little ones. The description um, is from a 17th century Puritan by the name of James Janway, where he compiled many accounts of conversion of little children. And um, also in there was a man by the name of Cotton Mather who wrote of his conversion and other New England children before their deaths. And particularly, there was one by the name of uh, Tabitha Alder. She was between seven and eight years old. Tabitha Alder was a daughter of a minister in a place called Kent, um, who lived near a place called Gravesend. She was instructed in the Holy Scriptures by her father and mother, but there appeared nothing extraordinary in her till she was between seven and eight years old. About that time, she became sick, and one asked her what she thought would become of her if she was to die. Again, remember, this is common in the, in the Reformation. This is common in former days of little ones who would meet their maker um, before the time that they would desire. She answered and said she was greatly afraid that she would go to hell. Being asked why she was afraid that she would go to hell, she answered because she did not love God. Again, being asked how she knew that she did not love God, she replied, what have I done for God ever since I was born? And besides this, I have... I've been taught that if, he lo- if a person loves God, he keeps his commandments, but I have kept none of them. Being further demanded, if she would not uh, feign the, the love of God, she answered, yes, with all my heart, if I could, I would love God, but I find it a hard thing to love one I do not see. She was advised to beg to God to give, him, give her a heart to love Him. And she answered, I'm afraid it's too late. Upon this, Seeing her in such a desponding condition, a a friend of hers spent the next day fasting and praying for her. After this, that friend asked her how she did now. She answered with a great deal of joy. Now, I bless the Lord. I love the Lord Jesus dearly. I feel I do love Him. Oh, I love Him dearly, she said. Why, said her friend. Did you not say yesterday that you did not love the Lord and you could not? Sure, she said. But it was Satan who hindered me. But now I love Him. Oh, blessed be God of the Lord Jesus Christ. And after she had this discovery of approaching um, dissolution, which was no small comfort to her, anon she said, with a holy triumph, I shall be with Jesus. I am married to Him. He is my husband. I am His bride. I have given myself to Him. And He hath given Himself to me. and, And I shall live with Him forever, she said. It goes on to say that the language struck the hearers with astonishment. She continued in kind of an ecstasy of joy, admiring the excellencies of Christ, rejoicing in her interest in Him and longing to be with Him. And after a while, some of her friends who stood near her observed more than an ordinary earnestness and fixedness in her countenance. They said to one another, look how earnestly she looks. Sure she sees something. This is on her deathbed. One asked her, what is it um, that, that, that your eyes are fixed upon so eagerly? I warrant, says one, that you see death coming. No, she said, it's the glory that I saw. It's that on which my eyes are fixed. One demanded of her what glory was like. She said, I cannot tell what, but I'm going to it. She says, will you go with me? I'm going to glory. Oh, that all were going with me so that glory. With these words, her soul took took wings and went to the possession of that glory. She died when she was between eight and nine years old. That the same demands laid upon an adult are the same demands that are laid upon our little ones. That you don't have to be a grown-up to seek the Lord. And grown-ups, you don't need to wait for your children 
um, to, to fulfill the, their wild, uh, yeah, their, their wild, you know, to, to, to feel a life of immaturity and rebelliousness and this and that and think that they can only come to Christ at the age of 16. Listen, if you wait until then, my friends, chances are that they will be gone. But you don't have to be a grown-up to seek the Lord. Little ones, God desires for you to serve and to honor and to seek Him in the days of your youth. Nor do you have to be a good person or a good kid to seek Him. You may be thinking, as some of my kids have, that I'm too bad to serve or to be one of Jesus' children. Listen, Jesus says that He came not to seek and to save the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He came not to seek and to save that which was uh, healthy, but those who need a physician. That He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that He came to save you, little ones, boys and girls, all throughout the church. That He came to save you. He came to die for you. And that Jeremiah 29.13 remains as true to you as it does to me and as it did to him. That if you'll seek the Lord, that you'll find Him. And when you search for Him with all of your heart. Parents, it's not good enough for us to sprinkle water upon our children. It's not good enough for us to make them members of the church. It's not good enough for us to catechize them and say they must be born again. It's not enough for us to give them a nice, safe environment in the home and food on the table and a sound education. We as parents cannot rest and should not rest simply um, until we labor after and for their conversion. I see that parents brought their children to Christ that they may be blessed. That they saw something that Christ could give them that they couldn't. I see that in Luke that, he, that, they, that they urged Christ and begged Christ to pray for their little ones. You say, for what? I'm not sure. But I can urge you today that, 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 that there is something that Christ has to offer your children that you cannot. And that it should be your labor to bring your children to Christ. That He may bless them with inevitable blessings that you cannot find in this world. That no organization, that no person, that no relationship, that no man, that no woman, that no other child could ever give them unless they come to Christ. That you must, and that you must pray for your children. That you must never automatically assume that your children are in the kingdom. That that's not what the text is teaching. If there's a danger of being raised in a Christian home, especially with a more natural, submissive child, and simply uh, urge them to follow the steps of Christianity to become a Christian because mommy and daddy are, or sister and brother is. And that there's a danger for many of us as Christian parents and churches to try to snatch them up at a young age before Satan gets them so that we can question them at a very young age and say things like, Johnny, you know, do you want to go to heaven? Do you love Jesus? See, I think that there's a danger for us as Reformed, a danger is up for us as conservative Baptists and even conservative Presbyterians as we react against the easy believism culture that has led to just droves of false conversions in our land, and rightfully so. But at the same time, I wonder if we actually truly believe that God can save our little ones. And they come to us asking questions and we think, you're just not old enough, maybe you should wait. And it's quite, the, it's quite the difficulty as I struggle with my own children and many of you have came and said, you know, when do you baptize a child? And some have come to the conclusion that they don't baptize until late in life. And I understand that and respect that. Because we want to guard against these false conversions and giving some type of 
um, credence to a false profession of faith and having our little ones think that they, that they are saved when they're not. But at the same time, I think we may fall in the realm of oftentimes um, just putting out the fire because we don't believe that a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, or an eight-year-old could ever know um, what it means to love Christ. Thus, many times we fall into the realm of one or the other, you know, asking five questions to little Johnny to get him to say yes when that's not conversion at all, right? I mean, what little five, six, seven, eight-year-old, when you ask him, do you love Jesus, is going to say, no, Daddy. You know, I hate the Lord of glory. <laughs> no, they're going to say what you desire for them to say. So we must guard against pressuring our children um, into a profession of faith that is null and void because they don't understand the glories, the majesty of Christ, nor the weight of their sin. But at the same time, we cannot waver on the other extreme thinking that our children can never come to Christ until a certain age because Jesus argues there that such of these little ones are what constitute the kingdom. That's His actual argument. That some of these babies, some are not babies, but some of these little ones are actually those who make up the kingdom of God. That's His argument. Thus we, with a, 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 a sober balance, must continually drive home the gospel without pressuring our children into making a decision for Christ, but bringing the weight of the law and the gospel upon their souls such that one day Christ gives them a new heart. And we see the evidence of repentance and we see the evidence of faith. And until that day, I would beg you, church, as I, beg, as I, as I, as I, as I bow before Christ even now, that I would be like the importunate widow in Luke chapter 18, that I will knock and not let go until God brings our children into the kingdom. That we must be like Jacob and wrestle with God until He blesses us. That we should follow in the footsteps of Monica, the mother of Augustine in the third century, who was a young man steeped in sexual immorality and a need and a desire for success. One day in tears, she goes to her pastor and her pastor says to her, a son of so many prayers and tears most certainly won't perish. And I'll be honest with you, I have a little holy heartburn with the theology contained within that statement, but I will tell you this. I think that it's very unlikely. And you take this or leave it. I think that it's very unlikely in the economy of God that where there are much tears and prayers by men and women and fathers and mothers for their children with sleepless nights and just faithful nurture and admonition of the Lord, it is because God Himself has put it within their hearts in such a way that they end up, bringing, or they end up being the means by which their conversion is brought about. So I beg you to have a burden for your children. And I don't know how to teach you that. I don't know how to teach me that. You know, other than like that seven or eight year old girl who doesn't understand the gospel at all, but knows that she's lost, begs God for a new heart, beg your, beg your God who's able to give you a heart, a heart for your children. When was the last time your cheeks were wet with tears? As the apostle in, in uh, Romans chapter 9, as he weeps and could even wish himself a curse for those kinsmen according to the flesh, how often have you prayed for your little ones to come to personal faith in Christ? Or have you thought, I'll wait until they're 8, until they're 9, until they're 10, until they're 11, until they're 12? Are you content with a mere profession of faith with no um, evidence of, of repentance, with no evidence of a, bro of a brokenness of heart over their sins? Are you fine with just this, 
this visible, uh, superficial profession of faith that little Johnny loves Jesus and he wants to go to heaven? Or will you labor hard over your children believing that they were a part of the New Testament church, that, 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 that Christ can save them, that Christ can redeem them, and that God, I, I'm convinced, has, uh, uses you and me as faithful fathers and mothers and being brought under the gospel at home and the gospel at church to bring those little ones to Christ. That you are to train them up in the ways of the Lord and that He'll use you as a means to bring your little ones to Christ. That you are to instruct them in the law and in the gospel. You know? Now you're not just to bring them here one day a week and think that that's enough. You know? Throughout church history and the history of the church, it's been, you know, often, God has often used the means of families to bring their little ones to Christ. Puritans used to call it family altar. We call it family worship. You may call it devotions. But man, it's one of the most effective means of bringing little ones to Christ. Just embracing the responsibility that God has given you over your little ones and just with so much joy and so many tears pursuing them day after day after day. You say, it's too much. It's too much to gather with my children once every night or four or five times a week and train them up in the way that they should go. I know it's a lot. But imagine with me for a moment that your child begins to exhibit some symptoms, neurological problems, you know it's not normal for a child to take or for a child to have, so you take them to the doctor. After a whole slew of tests, you find out that she has a form of cancer that's highly fatal. But the physician tells you that we've caught it early. Praise the Lord. Because of that, if you'll follow a rigorous schedule of chemo and radiation, it'll greatly increase your chances of healing. What would you think of a mother or a father who said, well... I know the doctor said four times a week, but little Susie has ballet on Tuesday. She loves to visit her friends on Thursday. Man, she loves the violin, and we can't give that up on Friday. I'm sure one or two hours a week on Monday will be fine. No, the chances are, with that attitude, little Susie will be dead in months. We know that the cancer is the culprit, but the remedy. But when the remedy is not effectively administered, it is negligence on the part of those who kept it from them that brings culpability to a parent. And that's true of us with the church too, friends. I love you, and that's why I tell you. that the Bible teaches us that our children are born apart from God in this world, and without Him they will perish. And it is our responsibility to bring Him to them day in and day out. So give Him to them. In whatever form you can, when you rise up, when you lie down, when you go in the way, teach them the ways of the Lord. Bring them to Christ. Bring Christ to them one hour a week and this little room is not enough. Sure, may God may use it in some fashion to give them a new little heart, but they need to hear it from you. They need to hear it from the One whom they've gained trust through faithfulness and love and care. They need the Gospel not from strangers, but from them them that they love the most. Not just monthly and not just weekly, but daily. They need Christ. And I trust that where the Gospel abounds, conversions abound. And I believe indeed that if we labor and pray and labor and witness and pray even more, and are consistent and faithful in our duties as parents that we can't 
fully trust that God will save them because He's sovereign and He's the one that does it in the end. But I do believe that we can have a confident hope that God will save our children. I don't think that that's outside the bounds of Scripture at all. God blesses faithfulness. Not in a sense that you'll save them, but that God will use you as a means through your faithfulness to save and to bless those little ones. Finally, children. Boys and girls. In this passage, we see that Jesus is willing to save the little children just like you. If you're old enough to know, then you're lost. And you're old enough to know that you need to be saved. And I would encourage you that if you're old enough to know that you're not right with God, then you're old enough to come to Christ and that you can be made right with Him if you know that you're wrong with Him. And I would encourage you today that if that's you, to go to your mommy and daddy this afternoon and tell them that you have some questions about Christ and what He's done to accomplish salvation for sinners. And that we will pray for you. That God will give you a new heart. And that you'll love Jesus. And that you can be in that fold in Colossians chapter 3. That now, you're not just obeying your parents to obey them. Um, to sway punishment. Or because you don't want to get in trouble. But because you want to please the Lord. That each and every little person here, boy or girl, 12 years old or 4, you know, um, has the commandment to obey their parents. But that won't save you. You must do it in the Lord. And the only way you could ever do it in a way that pleases the Lord is that if Christ saves your soul. So I beg you to run to Him and to put your faith and trust in Him. And if you have any questions about that, your mommy and daddy would love, and I would love to take a Bible and sit with you until that makes more sense. So we're praying for you. And that's the text. That's the application. And I pray that in some way God ministered to your heart. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for who you are. God, we thank you for the text. We thank you for the privilege it is just to read God's word, to know God's word, to believe God's word, and to um, trust in God's word. I pray that that's true of all of us, Lord. I pray that's even true of some of the little ones. God, I pray today that as they sit under the teaching of God's Word in Sunday school or in here, Father, that you use the Word of God to reach their little hearts in some way, whether it's to convict them of their sin, Father, or to bring them to yourself. And Father, we're praying for all our little ones. Father, we're praying that as disciples of Jesus, we don't stand in the way of their, of their coming to you. Father, I pray as a father that I would be faithful to the command not to exasperate my children or to provoke them to anger. Father, I pray that I wouldn't be negligent by abdicating my duties as a father. Father, as they sit with a terminal disease upon their souls, may I find nothing, Father. Uh, may, I may, not, may I not make my life so busy that I cannot run to them as you've ran to me. Father, will I carve out time to fulfill the duties um, that you've given me, the responsibilities and great privileges, Father, of being the carers of these little ones. Father, may you use us as the means to bring our little ones to Christ. Father, may we not stand in the way of them coming to you, receiving your blessing, Father, or knowing Christ as Lord and Savior. 
Father, may we not, as a church, as they come together to worship God, as we come together to worship God, think that we're here to worship God and they're not. Thus, Father, um, help us to know how to train them up, Father, to sit under God's word, to be respectful, Father, to those that are around us, to not to be, you know, um, unnecessary distractions. They're not a distraction. Children are not. But sometimes, Father, in our, our, um, our neglect, um, we can provoke that as well. Well, help us to remember the reverence of the worship of God and what it means to hear the word of God, thus guard um, the worship of God's word. And the greatest way to do that, Father, I'm convinced, is to train our little ones. So help me, Father, because I know that I've not been that faithful. Um, God, help me to know how to just give attention to each of their needs at each of their ages, Father, and to just provoke a love of the word of God in them, Father. And we know that I can't accomplish that, neither none of us can. Father, but we can pour the gospel out over them and bring the law upon their little hearts that they may know him, that they may know you, and that you may use that as a means to bring them to Christ. So do it, Father. Do it. If there's anybody else here, Father, an adult, um, who's not came into the kingdom as a little child, as hopeless, as helpless, um, and sinful, Father, and in need of you, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that you'd give them a new heart, Father, that we need to come as these little children, Father, despised, wicked, um, without Christ, without any ability, Father, to save ourselves. Father, I pray that this would be the gospel that we would bring to bear upon all the world as we leave from this place just purely the grace of God um, poured out upon sinners. And if they'll come under the rule and reign of Jesus, there'll be benefits, privileges that are out of this world and eternal. Father, take these truths to the depths of our heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.